Okay, I think we'll get started. When we left last week, not last week, the other day, we got up to this slide in our introductory part of the course. So the course is set up, you know, the first third is a, is a very broad general introduction. This, and then the second two thirds, we're going to go back and expand on some of the things that we are sort of not glossing over, but moving quickly over in the first third of the course. So, we're talking about antigens, we're talking about antibodies, right? Any substance capable of eliciting an immune response is an antigen. If something is antigenic, it's capable of causing the production of an antibody. And we finish by talking about antigenic determinants, right? They are the sites, very specific, discrete sites on an antigen that's going to be recognized and bound by an antibody. And it's also called an epitope. Right, we got up to whoops, we got up to this picture where we were basically just scaling in and zooming in and zooming in. We have an antibody binding to a, a bacteria here, and you'll know hopefully by the end of today why I make my antibodies look like this, an upside down Y or a Y itself. And if we zoom in, we have a, a, this antibody binding to proteins on the surface of the bacteria the antibody binding to the proteins, the amino acids interacting with each other, the R groups of the amino acids interacting with each other, and if we want to get closer and closer, right, we're looking at the clouds, and that's how the antibody's going to bind to the antigen. The reason the antibody binds to the antigen, we're not talking about that yet, right? We'll talk about it later on. Suffice it to say, right, this is the immune response. This is the, the, the aspect of the acquired immune response with an antibody binding to an invader, binding to that pathogen, right? But it's, it is binding to the pathogen, right? But it's actually interacting with proteins on the pathogen. So, if we're talking about antigens, what makes a good antigen, right? How is something going to be a good antigen? Well, the first thing is that antigens are going to be recognized as something that's foreign, right? So the more foreign, the better it's going to be. So if we have right, our laboratory animal that we're going to experiment with, and let's say you know, we have a rabbit and we want to make antibodies in a rabbit, we're going to inject into that rabbit right, something that we want to make an antibody to. So if it's foreign, it's going to be, make a better antigen. So if I go over to that rabbit and let's say I want to make some antibodies to one of, the, one of my antibodies. So I would take blood from myself, or one of you if you wanted to volunteer. I would purify out an antibody molecule, and I would take that antibody molecule, and I would inject it into the rabbit. I'm a human. That's a rabbit. I'm a little more foreign than a rabbit, I hope. So that rabbit would make a good antibody molecule. If, on the other hand, let's say I wanted to take a different molecule. Let's say I want to take hemoglobin. Hemoglobin's a pretty easy molecule to isolate. I take some red blood cells, put those red blood cells into some water. The red blood cells burst due to osmotic lysis. It's easy to take out the hemoglobin, right? Because basically red blood cells are just big old bags of hemoglobin. 
I take that hemoglobin, I inject it into the rabbit. I can do that with mouse, hemog uh, with mouse red blood cells. I can do it with cow red blood cells. I could probably do it with reptile red blood cells. Right? So reptiles and amphibian, right? I could use hemoglobin from them. They're a little bit further down the evolutionary ladder. Right? It's getting more it's foreigner. I guess that's a word. It's getting more, it's getting more foreign and more foreign. If, on the other hand, I went out into the harbor and I got a clam and I took some of its hemoglobin, right? Invertebrates don't have hemoglobin molecules. They have cyano, uh, haptoglobin molecules. They use copper as their ion to transport oxygen. So the molecule does a similar thing, but it's totally different than our hemoglobin. If I were to take that molecule and inject it into the rabbit, then the immune response would be that much greater because it's that much more foreign. So the more foreign, the better if we need to induce the immune response. The chemical composition of the antigen is going to be important. A protein molecule makes a much better antigen than, say, a lipid molecule or a carbohydrate molecule. We'll talk about why that's important later on. So the chemical composition of the antigen is going to be important. If we keep thinking about it, if a substance is easily degraded, it's going to be more antigenic. So I have a large protein molecule, and it can be degraded. That's going to be a better molecule. Right? If I have, let's say, some nucleic acid, and it's not easily degradable, it's not going to be good. And again, we'll talk about why that's going to be important later on. Large molecules, things that are about 100,000 kilodaltons or better, or, or better, are going to be better than a small molecule, let's say less than 10,000 kilodaltons, right? The average protein in the body is around 80, 65 to 80 kilodaltons. So most large molecules, right? Smaller molecules are, could possibly be more soluble, right? So they're going to be harder to be recognized by the immune system. So larger molecules, right? So what are we talking about, right? A large degradable protein that's foreign is probably the best antigen we could have, right? So large insoluble molecules are better than small soluble molecules because they're more readily taken up and processed by the cells of the immune system, right? And that's going to be the key here to what makes a good antigen. If it's going to be recognized by cells of the immune system and, and, and tried to be sequestered away and then acted upon by those cells of the immune system, that's going to be the best antigen we can have. Okay? And again, we will talk about this part for the rest of the semester. Right? We will get to it, I promise. Right? All, this, all will be revealed. So the structure of the antigen is going to be particularly important. So, we're talking about the best antigen we could have. We're talking about a large protein molecule. Right? So, hopefully you have your sort of basic biochemistry, right? So the surface structure of the protein is going to be very important, right? On that surface structure of the protein, we're going to have contiguous and discontiguous parts, right? So the contiguous parts are the linear plane of the molecule. 
the discontiguous parts are not on the linear plane of the molecule. So, right, a picture is worth a thousand words. So think about this protein right here, right? This is, this is a chicken lysosome. Again, we're going we're to be talking about a whole bunch of different proteins that people are using for research in, in the immunological studies that they're doing. And it's basically going to come down to what's the cheapest molecule I can have. Right? So we're going to be talking a lot about albumin molecules. Right? We're going to be talking about a lot of albumin molecules from cows. Right? It's real easy to get a lot of cow blood. Right? Albumin is the major protein that's in your blood right now. It's really easy to purify it away. Right? And a cheap way to do it, if I, want, if I need a lot of albumin, is I go to a slaughterhouse. Not a nice thing to think about. But you go to a slaughterhouse, and right, when people are processing meat, they don't usually save the blood for much of anything. So if I take buckets and buckets to a slaughterhouse, and get a whole bunch of blood, I can easily take away a lot of albumin from, the, from that blood. I can purify it away, bring it back to the laboratory, and I'll have a lot of, the, of a very specific protein that I'm going to work with. Same thing, right, just for this lysosome. It's real easy, right, to go get some eggs. I break open the eggs. I separate the yolk from the white. I'm not on the cooking channel, but I get rid of a lot of the protein that are contained in the yolk. Not so much protein in the white portion. What's the white portion called? The, I don't know, the white part, right? The yolk is yolk. All right, so I take the white, well, or the clear part, well, I don't know, whatever it is, right? And I can purify very easily lysosome because it's a very high concentration protein in egg whites. All right, so that's why we're using it. So we're looking here at a one-dimensional picture of lysosome. But you got to remember, right, this is a three-dimensional globular protein. So when you're looking at this in one dimension, you don't really get a pretty good feel for what the protein looks like. But if you could imagine this as a folded globular protein, right, maybe these amino acids are hidden deep inside. So maybe these are hydrophobic, right, amino acids. They don't like to come into contact with water or, or some sort of liquid. So they're inside the molecule. And the rest of these are on the, on, the, on the linear surface of the molecule. So again, just like we were looking before in, right, we could even go back to this cartoon when we looked here. Right? So here's the antibody binding to the linear surface. And maybe all of these uh, amino acids are twisted deep inside the three-dimensional structure of the protein itself. So it's going to be a lot easier for an antibody molecule to recognize right, amino acids on the linear portion of this protein than on the inside, right? because those inner amino acids are hidden away from being able to be recognized by the immune system. But in this picture, right, and we'll go back to this picture, right, and this is the picture I'm talking about. So in this picture, Right? as we're looking at this protein in a one-dimensional sort of structure, if you break those disulfide bonds, right, certain antibodies will not be able to recognize the antigen anymore. Right? It's going to change the epitope. It's going to change right, that antigenic determinant. Because think about what we're doing here. Right? So here are our, our, our disulfide bonds right, that are holding this protein together in a three-dimensional structure. 
Remember, disulfide bonds, right? Two sulfurs coming together from the cysteine amino acids. So disulfide bonds and cysteine residues are basically the rivets that are going to hold the three-dimensional protein, the three-dimensional structure of the protein together. So when you're looking at this, you're looking at sort of this ball of a protein, this globular shape of a protein. But if I come in here and I use some sort of reducing agent, right? So if I if I have my cysteine here, I have my sulfur, right, and my all my other amino acids are along here, right? I have my two sulfur moieties in the R group of cysteine. If I come in and reduce this, right, I basically break that bond. And now, this is basically a string of pearls now, right? I can take, right, from this part of the molecule, from amino acid number one to amino acid number what this is, it falls apart, and now I'm going to have this linear piece of the protein. Well, not the piece of the protein, I have the linear protein itself, right? Just in one long string. So, let's say that an antibody was binding to this protein, yeah, let's say it was binding right about here, right? So, when we looked at that other picture, I mean, epitope is maybe anywhere from three to four to five amino acids. So, if the antibody was binding here, and if I had an antibody that maybe was binding here, an antibody that was binding here, I add my, di I add my reducing agent, I break those disulfide bonds, and what's going to happen? What's going to happen is, if we sort of look at right, this sort of zoom in here. So my antibody was sitting right here before. I break those disulfide bonds. I now move those amino acids away from each other. And now the antibody's not going to be able to bind anymore, right? Because that epitope is broken. Okay? So the structure of the protein is going to change. And it comes down to, it's really easy the way antibodies bind to antigens, right? The most important part is the three-dimensional structure of the antigen. Right? Yes, we'll talk about the charges, and we'll talk about van der Waals forces, and we'll talk about ionic interactions when we talk about antigen-antibody interactions. We'll talk about all those things, but it's all going to come down to the three-dimensional structure. Right? It has nothing to do with the charge of any antibody at any one particular time. It's going to come down to Right? Think about biochemistry, think about the lock and key right? sort of explanation for the way uh, enzymes are going to be able to interact with a substrate. Same idea here, right? An antibody is going to interact with the antigen. It's going to be the three-dimensional structure. It's going to be how those, how those particular amino acids of the antigen are on the surface of the protein, right? So epitopes are generally, you know, hydrophobic amino, amino acids on the surface of the protein that are going to be accessible to the antibody molecule. So the other concept that we'll get out of the way early on, and when we talk about experimental systems and we talk about those rabbits that we're going to use and those mice that we're going to use. And, a, and a, one of the, the, the tools that have been developed to be able to make good antibodies are using substances that are called adjuvants. Right? And adjuvants are basically derived from the Latin word for help. 
I'm up on my, I'm not up on my Latin, but it's adjuvare, I think. So anyway, an adjuvant. There are substances that when mixed with an antigen and injected with that antigen, right, are going to enhance the immunogenicity of that antigen. And one of the most important ones and the most famous ones is called Freund's adjuvant. And Freund's adjuvant was developed by, you guessed it, Dr. Dr. Freund, right? Everybody wants to be famous, so you just name stuff after yourself. So we have Freund's adjuvant. And adjuvants are going to be used to boost the immune response when an antigen has a low immunogenicity or when there's a very small amount of antigen present. So let's say that you need to make an antibody molecule to a protein you've been studying. Because right? if you have an antibody molecule and you can do maybe a Western blot or you could do something with that antibody molecule. But let's say you're studying some particular nuclear pore protein. Right? So you've been working and you've been working and you've been working and you've been purifying, you've been taking cells and you've been growing cells and you've been lysing the cells and you've been isolating nuclei and then you take these nuclei and then you have to lyse the nuclei and then you've got to look for the proteins that make up a gated channel on this nuclei. Probably not going to be a very a lot of those proteins. So you might have a very small amount of this protein. You may have a very small amount of antigen. And you don't want to keep working for another six months to keep purifying and purifying. You want to be able to make your antibody very quickly, because once you get that antibody, you could use it in your purification steps. So you could take a small amount of this antigen, mix it with an adjuvant, and then you could inject this adjuvant uh, antigen mixture into your rabbit or into your mouse or whatever you want to make an antibody with, and the adjuvant is going to be able to boost the immune response. Because right? what you're going to do, basically, right, this is one of the, one of the very nonspecific things that are going on with adjuvants. Right? So right, you only have a real small amount of the of the antigen or the protein that you want to make an antibody to, but that adjuvant, right, you got a whole, you got all sorts of stuff that's in that mixture of that adjuvant. Right? There's all sorts of stuff in there. So you're going to take this mixture, you're going to inject it into the rabbit, and the rabbit's going to get, right, the rabbit immune system is going to really start to recognize, right, the adjuvant proteins in general. So it's going to start to make antibodies, right? A very vigorous antibody response. And then, you know, sort of in the collateral damage that's taking place, right? Antibodies are going to be bound, are going to be made to your protein of interest. So it's just a way to boost the ability of the experimental animal immune system to be able to recognize the antigen that you're uh, interested in. Right? The mechanism is very diverse. Right? It's not well understood, but basically most adjuvants are going to prolong the persistence of the antigen. Right? It's going to make it more available to the immune system and increase right, local inflammation. So if you look at you know, just a bunch of different adjuvants, right? we have all sorts of different adjuvants, and 
basically what it's made up of, it's made up of basic broken bacteria or broken sort of pathogen, right? So if we take some different uh, bacteria, kill those bacteria, break up those bacteria, we're just adding just nonspecific proteins into our mixture. The other thing that most adjuvants contain is most adjuvants are made up in some sort of mineral oil. If I take saline and inject it under the skin of a rabbit, right, and if I use saline in here, what's going to happen to this saline? And what's going to happen to all the proteins that are, that are uh, suspended in that saline? Right? They're basically just going to diffuse away. Because once that saline gets in there, it's just going to diffuse everything away. If, on the other hand, I'm using some sort of mineral oil, right, that mineral oil isn't going to diffuse. What's going to happen after a while is, right, if I inject it into that rabbit, that mineral oil is going to stay there for quite a long time. Right? It's very viscous. It's like injecting maple syrup, right, into your skin, right? You're going to get a ball of this stuff, and it's going to take a while for the immune system to break it all down, and that persistence is what that adjuvant is going to bring to the table as well. It's going to keep all of these proteins in there for a while, right? Eventually, you're going to take blood from this rabbit, you're going to purify away all these other antibodies, and then you're going to have antibodies left to your protein of interest. Okay? So, that's where we should have been the other day. Let's look at right, antibody molecules now. Got a pretty good idea of what, right, of what, uh, uh, what makes a good antigen. Now let's look at antibody molecules. So, in keeping up with the jargon and keeping up with the confusion, right, we talked about that on the very first day, we have immunoglobulin, right? It's going to be abbreviated as capital IG, just another word for antibody. Right? So an immunoglobulin or an antibody is a family of structurally related glycoproteins. So that tells you that there's a whole bunch of them, right? Developed in response to and interacting specifically with an antigen. And it's important, right, that this Specificity is involved here, right? Because that's what we'll be talking about for the rest of the semester, right? The specificity of the immune response. So, we have a family, that means we have a whole bunch of different antibody molecules. They're all glycoproteins. Yeah, that's okay. Just a protein with a little carbohydrate on it, a little bit of sugar on it, right? We got a whole bunch of different glycoproteins in the body, so there's nothing special about antibodies being glycoproteins. Right? So, why are we using immunoglobulin? Right? Let's put a little historical perspective in here, right? This is the late 1950s, the late 1960s, and we're sitting in our biochemistry laboratory, and we just invented electro, well, we didn't do it, but somebody just invented electrophoresis. Right? Electrophoresis, the ability to be able to uh, separate protein molecules based on the charge. The electrophoresis we're using back in 1950, it's called paper electrophoresis. 
what we're going to do is we're going to put a little bit of protein on one piece of paper. We're going to put electric charge through that paper. The proteins are going to start to migrate away, and we're going to have a way to detect those proteins. Right? So that's all we're looking for here. No, I'm not looking for. That's all we're looking at here. Right? We put our protein spot here to start with, with our mixture of proteins. We start electricity. The proteins start to migrate right, along that electric current. And we have a different way to detect those proteins. We're just going to use absorbance of the protein molecules. So we have our rabbit, right, that poor rabbit. We're still working with that rabbit. And before we do anything to that rabbit, we're going to collect some blood, right, because we need to know what antibodies were there beforehand. And then we're going to come in with our protein and our adjuvant. We're going to inject it into the rabbit. We're going to wait a while, a week or two, right, for this to go away and the immune response to really have kicked in. We're going to inject again, right? We're going to do this again. We're going to stimulate the immune response again. We're going to do it. We might do it two or three times. It might take us a month and a half or a couple of months of injection. Well, we're not going to inject them all the time. But it's going to take a couple of months' worth of work to where we are satisfied Right? We're just going to give the immune system a lot of time, a lot of opportunity to make a good antibody response. And then we're going to isolate blood from that animal. And now we're going to subject both of those samples to electrophoresis. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do our control animal. Well, not the control animal. We're going to use our control sample, and that was before we injected anything into the animal. We're going to run our electrophoresis, and what do we see? We see this black line right here. So here's albumin. Right? I said albumin was the major protein in blood, so we absolutely see albumin. Right? We're still not sure what albumin, this is just an aside, we're still not sure of what albumin does in the blood. Right? We, it kind of it transports certain proteins, but we really don't know really what it does. We think it has something to do with right, giving a little bit of viscosity to blood. Right? Just making it a little more different than regular sort of uh, body tissues, but we're still not sure. But anyway, so we see a big spike of albumin, the number one protein in the body. We're moving along, right? And then we see another spike, another spike in absorbance here. So we got to call that something. So we're going to use Greek nomenclature. We're going to call it the alpha proteins or the alpha globulins. Right? Another name for proteins are globulins. So these are going to be the alpha globulins. We could have called them the one globulins or the Charlie globulins, whatever. So we call them the alpha globulins, and we move, keep moving. And now we're able to detect another blurb, the beta globulins. And then we come out here, and now we have the gamma globulins. Okay, so, okay. We did that, and we found that we have different proteins in the blood. Okay, so now we're going to come back, and now we're going to do the same thing we're going to do to the rabbit that we injected with our adjuvant and our, and our antigen. We see the same amount of albumin, nothing really changes. We see the same, you know, proteins that make up the alpha globulin component. We see the same proteins that make up the beta globulin component. But now, we get a big difference, right, in this gamma globulin component. So, Clearly, it's something that was developed by the immune system, so we're going to call these immunoglobulins, right? The immune proteins. And this is 
the fraction of proteins that we're going to start investigating now, right? Because now we've narrowed this down. We know where to search for, and we know where to look for and start to identify those proteins in the blood that are part of the immune response, right? Because it's a, this increase in proteins over the rabbit before we started to inject it and the rabbit after we start to inject it, right? So, right, doing this, what we're doing right now, is like being a bad comedian, right? Because I've got to give you the punchline first. Right? I've got to show you what an antibody molecule looks like. Right? I mean, I could turn this all around. I could say, you know, we could take this, and we need to do these experiments, and then eventually we're going to come to show what an antibody molecule, what an immunoglobulin looks like. But better off that we start from the beginning and we know what the immunoglobulin molecules look like. At the end of the day, right, each immunoglobulin molecule is about 150,000 right, Daltons. No big deal about that. We get a lot of proteins that are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of, of Daltons in the body. It's a heterodimer. It's made up of two separate chains. Yeah, no big deal about that either. We got right hemoglobin is made up of two separate chains. We got lots of proteins that are made up of two separate chains. So if we look, we're going to find that there are two heavy chains, and they're heavy because they're about 50,000 molecular weight. They're going to be heavier than the other chains that, as it turns out, we're going to call light chains because they're not as heavy as the heavy chains, right? So we have two heavy chains, and the heavy chains are going to be specific for the class of molecule. Right? I said it's a family. Right? So each of these heavy chains are going to be specific for the, for the type of family that the immunoglobulin molecule is going to be. And like I said, they're about 50,000 molecular weight each. And then we have two light chains, and we're going to abbreviate them with a capital L. But light chains, right? heavy chains are going to come in a whole bunch of different types of heavy chains. Light chains, there's only two light chains. Right, and again, we're keeping with our Greek nomenclature. We're going to call it one kappa, and we're going to call the other one lambda. Right, and we'll talk a lot about kappa and lambda right for the next, right, later today and, and tomorrow. And the light chains are about 25,000 molecular weight. Okay. So 250s, 225s, make 150 kilodaltons. So there it is. That's the antibody molecule. That's the reason, right, that when you see cartoons with antibody molecules, they look like big Ys, because they look like big Ys, right? So here's the heavy chain, and here's the light chain, right? So we have two heavy chains, two light chains. And they're glycoproteins, so we have a little bit of carbohydrate down into here, okay? The, this part of the molecule, Right? This amino terminal part of the molecule is the part that recognizes the epitopes, right? Because when we make it, we always make the Y binding to the protein. So this is the part that recognizes it. The light chains and the heavy chains are right, basically welded to each other with these disulfide bonds. And there are major disulfide bonds that hold the two heavy chains together. So, this side of the molecule and this side of the molecule are exactly the same. Right? 
This heavy chain is exactly this heavy chain. This light chain is exactly this light chain. So when this antibody is binding, right, it's binding to the same epitopes over here. So this is the antibody molecule. So the question now is, right, we have to go back in the, in the, in the Wayback Machine, and we've got to start figuring out how people came to know that this is what the antibody molecule looks like. Okay, so how are we going to do that? Well, before we get there, right, we can fill in a little bit more of a, of a, of a, of the, to the puzzle. Right? So, we'll also see on that picture that each chain right, has a variable region or a variable domain, and each chain has a constant region or a constant domain, and the variable region is going to be abbreviated with a V, and the constant region with a C, right? So the, car, uh, the carboxy terminal of the heavy light chain is the where the constant region is. So we have the constant region of the heavy chain or the constant region of the light chain. And the, and the, the, right, the amino terminus of the heavy light chain is where the variable region is. So we have the variable region of the heavy chain or the variable region of the light chain, right? So that's why, right, we sort of have all these different colors in here. So here's the variable region of the heavy and the light chain, and here's the constant region of the heavy chain, and here's the constant region of the light chain. Okay. So variable region, constant region, variable region, constant region. So the heavy chain has more constant regions, and that's what makes it 50,000 molecular weight. All right. So if we look at a different Right? Uh, if we look at this ball diagram, it gives us a little bit more of the three-dimensional structure of the protein. So let's just sort of orient ourselves. Right? Here's the variable region. Here's the heavy chain. Here's the light chain. Now, right? let's step back for one second. Right? So before, when I said you know, this part of the molecule and this part of the molecule are exactly the same, so here you're looking at it, and you're seeing, well, this heavy chain looks like it's different than this heavy chain and this light chain, right? That's just artistic rendering, right? That was just the artist doing this to allow us to see where the different heavy chain, or where the heavy chains are and where the light chains are, right? If the artist made this heavy chain the same color as this heavy chain, and we just have a bunch of balls, you know, just sort of sitting there on this protein structure, right? So that's why this one's light blue, this one's dark blue, this is dark red, and this one, whatever, okay? So that's the only difference. But, right, so here's the variable region and the constant region. Here are the other constant regions of the heavy chain. Here's the variable region and the constant region of the light chain, right? If we look in this diagram, you can see the same sort of idea. Right? So you can see that they are individual domains, right? So variable region, constant region, constant region, constant region of the heavy chain on the other side, and then variable region and constant region of the, of the, of the light chain. If we use a ribbon diagram, you can start to see the same thing. Yeah, that doesn't help. Yeah, you can, well, you can kind of see what's going on here. You really can't. I have a hard time seeing the light chain, so let's just concentrate on the heavy chains, right? So constant region, constant region, constant region, variable region, right? They're held together, so you can see that they're actual domains. It's a different protein substructure. 
constant region, constant region, constant region, variable region. Okay. It just sort of gives you different perspectives of the molecule itself. All right. So, what do we need to do? Right? It's 1940, it's 1950. What do we need to do to start investigating this immunoglobulin molecule? Well, what we need is we need a constant amount, not a constant, we need a, a consistent starting material. Right? We need to have a lot of protein molecule, right? The more protein molecule we have, the easier it's going to be for us as biochemists to purify it, right? If we have a very small amount to start with, it's going to be hard to purify it, but if we have a, a large pot of this protein, it's going to be real easy to purify, right? Because it doesn't matter if during our purification step we only get a 20% return. If we start with kilograms worth of this protein, right, we're going to get a kilogram worth of protein in the very end, right? From an industrial scale, that's not such a bad trade-off. If we have a very small amount, if we only have micrograms to start, right, and then we get picograms at the end, you get the idea, right? So we need a large pot of this protein to start with. The other part about this is we need to have this very consistent starting protein. Let's take an example. Let's assume for a moment that we take that same rabbit. We're not going to inject that rabbit anymore, right? We've injected it enough. So we take that rabbit, we take blood from that rabbit, and we start with that protein, right, with those antibodies that we just induced in this rabbit, all right? We're purifying, we're purifying, we're spilling some on the table, you know, so we need some more. So what are we going to do? Well, clearly that rabbit is still there, right? We treat our rabbits nicely around here, so that rabbit's still there. We go back, we get some more protein, mix it up with some more adjuvant, start injecting it into that rabbit. Are the antibodies going to be the same? May, oh, so, okay, yes, the, the bottom line is no, they're not going to be the same. Let's assume that when we go to inject this rabbit again, I, I, it has a rabbit cold. I don't know, the rabbits get cold? I, I guess they do. So let's assume it gets a cold, right? And now we're going to start injecting our protein along with the antibodies that that rabbit is now making all by itself because it has a rabbit cold. Those antibodies aren't the same anymore. Let's assume for a minute that those proteins that we mixed with our adjuvant, maybe they degraded a little bit. Maybe we're not using as much adjuvant. Maybe the adjuvant degraded a little bit. We're going to inject it into that rabbit. We're still, right? We might, they might be different. We might get different results when we start using this batch of immunoglobulin or gamma globulin that we're investigating, right? So we need a way, right, to get a consistent batch, right? If you're cooking, you always want consistency, right? If you go to a restaurant and you sit down and you like the fish that you just ate, you expect that fish to taste and be prepared exactly the same way when you go back next week. That's why you're going back. Man, I really love the way that fish was prepared, right? If it's different fish, if it's a different cook, that's okay. You can still have the cookbook, but 
I don't know, if it's a different type of basil, if the basil's a week old, or whatever you're going to use, right? It's going to be different. So we need a way, and the way we're going to do that is we're going to have certain uh, protein pools from immunoglobulin molecules that we can choose and go back with every single time. So the first thing we can do is we could take tumors. Right? If we have a tumor of the cell that produces the antibody molecule, right, tumors can grow almost forever in tissue culture. Right? That's one difference between a normal cell and a tumorigenic cell in tissue culture. A normal cell, if I take a normal cell out of your body, if I take some fibroblasts out of your body, I put them into plastic, I put them in my incubator upstairs, they're going to grow, they're going to divide, they're going to grow, they're going to divide, they're going to grow. After a certain amount of time, that normal cell is going to die. Right? There's only a certain number of cell divisions that that normal cell will undergo in plastic. Right? That was one of the major sort of advances in tissue culture. And we're going to talk a lot about tissue culture when we talk about study of the immune system. Because it, it, was, it was successes and, and sort of roadblocks that were overcome in tissue culture that allowed the immune system to be studied rather easily, right? Because if we can take cells out and grow them in culture, it's a lot easier than every day going back and asking someone, oh, can I take some more blood out of your arm? I want to study those cells again. Oh, can I take some more blood? I need to study those cells again, right? So advances in tissue culture, right? So tumor cells, right? That's what makes a tumor cell different than a normal cell at the tissue culture level, right? One of the early sort of people in tissue culture, Dr. Hayfleck, came up with Hayfle the, right, the Hayfleck number. Maybe you heard about the Hayfleck number. It's the, the number of divisions that a cell will undergo before it dies. It's also why we're only on this planet for a very small amount of time. Right? We're dying because our cells every time, well, I don't want to alarm anybody, right? but eventually our cells aren't going to divide anymore. Right? And that's when we'll pass off this earth. Right? So that was the Hayflick number. Tumor cells don't have a Hayflick number. They just keep growing and growing and growing. So there are certain tumor cell lines that were isolated in the 1920s and the 1930s and the 1940s that are still gangbusters in someone's laboratory, right, in anybody's laboratory, because tumor cells will not stop growing. And that's what makes them Right? Such a threat to us, and we'll talk about that. But anyway, so we're going to take a tumor of a, of a B cell. Right? A B cell is the cell that produces antibody molecules. And those antibody molecules that this B cell is secreting are going to be the same antibody molecules today as they were last week, as they're going to be five years from now and ten years from now. Right? So if we need to have proteins to be able to deal with, if we need to take those antibodies, hopefully if we have some sort of tumor, we're going to get them from those antibodies. Right? Multiple myeloma right? in people or plasmacytoma in a mouse. Right? B-cell tumors. Right? They're going to secrete the same anti-immunoglobulin molecule, the same antibody, week after week, year after year. Bentz-Jones proteins. Right? Dr. Benz and Dr. Jones want to be famous, so they, they name proteins found in 
in urine after themselves. It's not a good sort of way to name things after yourself, right? But in multiple myeloma, right, you can find certain proteins, and those proteins are excess light chains found in urine of multiple myeloma patients, right? Those B cells, those tumorigenic B cells in, in that multiple myeloma patient, they're just secreting and secreting and secreting, right? And eventually those proteins are going to end up in the urine. So we have a large, a large pool, right? You just, it's horrible to think about. You just collect a lot of urine, and then you can purify away those light chains, right? Another one called heavy chain disease, or abnormal heavy chains are produced, right? So we have this nice sort of starting material that we're going to start with, right? So what's the next thing we need to do? Well, the next thing we need to do is we need to start to sequence these proteins, right? So I added my disulfide bonds, right? And here are my, here are my immunoglobulin molecules, right? From amino acid number one to whatever the last amino acid is, right? So I sit there and now I start to sequence, right? It's the early 1950s or the 60s, right? I'm using the Edmund degradation, right? Everybody took uh, organic chemistry, you know about the Edmund degradation, right? Edmund's going to win a Nobel Prize for making the Edmund degradation, right? Immunoglobulin molecules were one of the first proteins that were ever sequenced in their amino acid uh, sequence. Right? Wasn't the first, the first one was uh, hemoglobin, right? Hemoglobin, again, it's a lot more it's a lot easier to isolate hemoglobin, right? Take out some red blood cells, put the blood cells into water, you could basically have a whole beaker full of hemoglobin, right? So we're going to start sequencing. And what do we find? This is what we find. Right, I'm not going to sit here and tick off forever. You get the idea, right? Those are just individual ticks down here. These are differences in the amino acids. Everywhere there's a tick, there's a different amino acid, right? So this immunoglobulin molecule is different to this immunoglobulin molecule, and this one, and this one, and this one, because all these amino acids over here are very different. Right? So this part of the molecule is very variable. Ooh, so that's the variable region. And then over on this half of the molecule, we don't have many differences over here. So this is the variable region of the antibody molecule. This is the constant region of the antibody, whoops, of the antibody molecule. Right. Again, right, we've done all of, the, all of the control work we needed to do. Right? It doesn't matter if this antibody was made in a in rabbit here or a rabbit in New York or a rabbit in Tokyo, or a rabbit in, you know, in Brasilia, right? It's going to look like this way. It doesn't matter if this antibody was raised against, right, some lysosome, some albumin, doesn't matter, right? We, we've controlled for all that, right? It's going to look like this. So almost every single antibody molecule is going to be different than any other antibody molecule because of that variable region, okay? So we start doing this, and at the same time we're doing this, right? We're reading our biochemistry 
journals. We're talking to other biochemists in our, in our department or in our, in our building at our university. And we're learning about these new things that are called enzymes. Again, right? you've got to remember, right? it's 1950. You know a lot about these things, of these new types of proteins that are called enzymes, right? But we know that these proteins called enzymes, right? Some of them, right, are proteases that can chew up other proteins, right? Well, we had a lot of proteases in our stomach, right? That's how you start to digest things, right? Got a lot of pepsin, one of the proteases, in our stomach. Right? That's the first sort of thing that happens in terms of digestion. So, like any other branch of science, we are going to use these enzymes, we're going to use these proteases to study our protein. Right? We're, going to take all, we're going to take a whole bunch of different antibody molecules, we're going to subject them to enzymatic degradation or chemical degradation, and we want to see what happens. Because maybe they can help us elucidate the structure. Right? Here's the bad punchline. You already know what the structure is, but right, we're doing a crossword puzzle now, right? We don't know what the crossword, we don't know what the answers are on the crossword puzzle. We have to start filling in those answers, right? Scientific investigation. We've got to start breaking apart. We've got to start using all sorts of tools. So, what's the first thing we do? The first thing we do is we're going to take this protease that's called papain, and we're going to digest the immunoglobulin with papain. And what we're going to see is we're going to get three polypeptides of about 50,000 molecular weight each. And we have to give them a name, right? We've got to have some sort of nomenclature because they're not antibody molecules anymore. Now they're antibody pieces. So we have a couple of pieces we're going to call the FAB region. And we have one piece we're going to call the FC region. And then we're going to use this, right, this pepsin, because we found this new protease that's called pepsin. And when we add pepsin to our antibody molecule, we got a whole bunch of new pieces, right? We get two polypeptides that are very similar to these FAB fragments. We're going to call them something else, so we're going to call them FAB prime 2. And we also see parts of this FC region. And if we break apart those disulfide bonds, by adding a reducing agent that's called beta-mecaptoethanol, right? Then we get two chains. That's how we know about the heavy chain and the light chain, right? Because we broke those disulfide bonds and we got the heavy chain and the light chain. So, I'll show you the picture, right? We're done for the day. We'll go over this picture on Monday. Remember, right, Monday morning there's going to be a quiz online if you are so inclined. Take a look.